I'm really glad you're all here today. We're going to be uh, continuing in our study of Second Peter. And just to give a little context for anybody who hasn't been here, um, uh, Peter, who wrote this letter, was one of the original 12 apostles. So he knew Jesus personally. And at this time, he is one of the key leaders in the early church. So it's in this role that he's writing this letter to fellow believers. And at a really, ooh, sorry about that, at a really high level, um, is everybody awake now? Okay, good. Um, at a really high level, there's two, um, a twofold purpose that Peter has in writing the letter. And the first, uh, we heard Ezra preach on this a couple weeks ago, um, was about encouraging his, his fellow believers, um, about staying strong in their faith and, and growing in their knowledge and love of God and then putting it into action in their lives. And the second purpose, uh, if you were here last week, you heard Keith preach on this. Um, it was also a warning. And what he was warning these Christians about at this time were false prophets. There were people who, both inside and outside the church, who were actively trying to pull people away from their faith. Uh, they're twisting the truth. Um, they were just trying to derail things and have people question what they knew was the truth about Jesus. So that's where we're going to be spending some time today. In the midst of that warning that Peter gives, he also gives two promises. And they're this. God. So Peter's giving a warning, right? We talked about these false prophets. Um, but in the midst of the warning, he's making two promises, and they're these. God's not going to let these false prophets and, in general, evil go unpunished. He's going to do something about it. And the other thing is he promises he's going to rescue the righteous. And that's what we're really going to be focusing on today, those, those two promises that he makes. God judges sin, but at the same time, he rescues the righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, those things seem like really polar opposites. And I, I think this is really one of the big tension points in the Bible. How can you have a God that is totally just and will judge evil, but at the same time is holy and loving, loving and merciful and forgiving? How do those two things coexist? That's what I want, hopefully, for us to see today, that not only can they coexist, but in God they have to. So we're going to do that today by looking at two pieces of Scripture. We're in 2 Peter, but you're going to see Peter makes some references uh, to some Old Testament Scripture, and one of them is Noah. So what we're going to do is take really a deep dive look into the beginning of the story of Noah and find out why Peter referenced him, what point he's trying to make here. So we're going to try to answer that, bo that big question, how those two big things coexist with each other, and we're going to do that by taking some smaller chunks. And we're going to be looking at this in the, li in the life of Noah, why God deals with sin and how he deals with it. Then we're also going to look at why God rescues the righteous and why he does it. And then finally... What does that all mean for us? So that's where we're headed today. So before we do that, let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, we thank you for giving us your word that we can learn more about you. And 
we're going to be chewing on some stuff that's kind of hard to, to wrestle with. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you be with us today, give us open hearts, and allow us to just ask hard questions, and we ask for your help in answering them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you haven't already, uh, we're going to be in Second Peter. Uh, scripture's up on the screen as well. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And the scripture says this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, and here's the key verse, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of justice. God knows how to rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. Now, as I mentioned, Peter's giving a couple different examples here um, to show that point, and we're going to hone in on his example of Noah. So um, if uh, you can, we're going to do some Bible gymnastics. I need you to flip all the way to the front now. We're going to be in Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 6. And as you're doing that, I have a question for you. When you hear the name Noah, what are the top three, four things that you think of right off the bat? Ark, animals, flood, rainbow. It's probably like the top four, right? Um, all parts of the story, all awesome. We're going to look at everything, or at least part of what happened before that. So that's where we're going to be focusing today. How did, why did all of that stuff happen? So let's start here in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Let's pause there for a second. God's making a pretty clear statement of what he's about to do. He has to judge evil. And I don't know about you, but when I'm reading scripture, I ask all kinds of questions. And the first question that came to my mind is, why? Can't you just look the other way? Is it really that bad? You know? Um, the short answer is no. He can't look the other way. 
And here's the reason why. He can't be a righteous God and a loving father if he did. What he saw when he looked down, he saw all the people that he had created, and they were corrupt. They completely turned from him. They were headed down a path with just no good way out. There was no way out, in fact. And what does it say that did to him? It says it grieved him to his heart. All of that sin broke God's heart because that's how much he loved the people he created. And because he loved them so much, he just couldn't ignore it. I don't know if any of you have ever had a family member, maybe a child, parent, friend, who just was on the wrong path, making bad decision after bad decision, listening to the wrong advice, not really caring about how they were affecting and hurting the people around them. I know I, I've had a personal example of that, unfortunately, um, in our extended family. And seeing him go through that, it, it kills you. Like, you love him. Why, why are you making these choices? You know it's only going to end in a really bad way. At some point, you know, I'm wishing, like, man, I just hope he hits rock bottom before he completely destroys himself. You know, maybe that'll snap him out, right? When you love somebody like that and you see what they're doing, it's excruciatingly painful. And I know there's many of you in here who are either going through something like that right now or have experienced that. And it's a loss. And you're in grief. You grieve over that. If you felt that, or even if you can kind of imagine what that might be like, I think that gives us a really small taste of how God was feeling. Right? The creator of the universe creating these people, and they've all just turned away and they're leading lives that are just ultimately going to lead them to destruction. So what's he going to do about that? In this case, it's pretty drastic. He said he's going to wipe them out. And why is he doing it? As a holy, righteous God and a loving father, he has to do something about it. He can't let that go unchecked. And as the creator God, he has the right to do it. He created it all. If it's going south, he can change direction. And ultimately, something that most of us fail at, because we don't have the power to make those changes, he's the all-powerful God, and he can do something about it, and he does. That's why he has to deal with sin. There's a cost, and the cost has to be paid for so let's continue on. We're going to pick up in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I think it was corrupt. 
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. All right, so there's a lot there. Let me start where we left off on the why God has to punish. If there was any doubt before in those first verses, the world was corrupt, right? We can see that very clearly, and hopefully I made the point, too, of why God has to deal with it. He can't just let sin go unchecked. But I think we also see the answer to one of our other questions, how does God deal with sin and evil? Let's look at verse 13. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's pretty heavy. You know, if you had any idea that you thought maybe God didn't take sin seriously, I hope that hammers at home for you. It's very serious. You know, when I hear that, um, I, I wrote down a couple of words that came to mind. Drastic, definitive, final, no escape. Now, I know I'm really belaboring this point here, but it's an important one. If we don't understand how God views sin, we're not going to get the rest of this. And this flies so much in the face of what we see in our culture, right? We, we rationalize. You know, there's maybe some really bad sins. We probably shouldn't kill people. But, you know, the other stuff that we do that we know God calls us not to do, we rationalize it. We try to find a way around it. God doesn't see it that way. Sin is not a trivial thing to him. And one of the biggest reasons why he hates sin so much is the harm that it does to us, the harm that it was doing to these people in Noah's time, because that sin separates us and them from God. That relationship, that's all that we really need. It's all that's ever going to fulfill us. But that sin was a separation. 
Now we could go deeper and deeper into this, and I know that was sort of a, a, a quick run through, but I hope that you can see here a little bit more about why God has to deal with evil and how he does it. He does it in a very definitive way. But let's move on to the other part of our questions here. Why does God rescue the righteous and how does he do it? So a little bit happier note here. Well, let's look back at the scripture. In verse 8, it says that Noah found favor with God. And in verse 9, it goes on to say that he was righteous and blameless in his generation. But if you haven't gotten this already, when I study the Bible, I ask all kinds of questions. So one of the first questions that came to me is, well, why did, why did Noah, why was he seen that way by God? What was it about him? Check out the last four words in verse 9. Noah walked with God. Well, what does that mean exactly? It means this. Noah lived his life in step with God. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. If you read on, um, get to chapter 9 in Genesis, you're going to see how he you know, goes the wrong direction really quickly. So it wasn't about Noah, but it was about Noah having a relationship and walking with God. He was integrated into his life. It wasn't a God that was off to the shelf. You know, some of you, you go to him when you're in trouble. Noah was living his life in congruency with God. So here's the really important point to take from that. Noah's righteousness ultimately had absolutely nothing to do with who he was. It had everything to do with who he had a relationship with, who he loved, and who he followed. That's why God saw Noah as righteous. And that's why God rescued him. Now let's take a look at the how. How was God going to rescue Noah from this massive trial that he was about to encounter, right? A flood that the world had never seen before that was going to wipe out everything. How's God going to help him with that? Well, I, I think we see three different things that God does. First, we see God warned Noah what was coming and why. He told him, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is why it's happening. God also gave him a very specific way out. In this case, it was building the ark, right? I, I tended, the first few times I read this, I skip over all the cubit stuff real quick. So I'm like, what does that, I don't know what that means. But look back over it. That's a really specific set of instructions. We know how high, we know how big, cover it with pitch, the whole deal. So God gave him very specific instructions, a very specific way out to be rescued. And here's the other thing I think we see. God provided everything that he needed. You know, he gave Noah the directions, all the provisions, everything. He brought the animals, right? The, the wood, everything, that was all provided. But remember how I said God and Noah, they, they were integrated, right? There was a relationship there. This wasn't just about what God was providing, but it was also the response. How did Noah respond? Well, first off, he listened to the warning. He didn't have to. Guy's sitting there in the middle of a desert. Why am I building a boat? You know, nobody else is building a boat. Everybody else is having a good time. Why am I going to build a boat? 
but he listened to God, and he had faith in what God was telling him. Even though, I mean, it was flying completely in the face of everything that was around him. We also see that Noah obeyed God, and he put effort into it. And he stayed committed for the long haul. Um, I couldn't find it when I was trying to get an idea of like how long did it actually take to build the ark. I didn't find a consensus anywhere, but we're talking decades. This is not a weekend renovation driving back and forth from Lowe's, right? This is year after year after year after year building a boat in the desert. There's faith there and there's commitment there. You know, God didn't send a couple raindrops and say, hey, it's coming. No, he just said, do this. And that was Noah's response. So in short, the how of God's rescue for Noah was this. He provided a very specific way to be rescued, build the ark and get inside, gave him all the provisions, and all Noah had to do was receive God's offer. So, what does all that mean for us, right? We have a little bit of a picture of why God has to deal with evil and how he does it. We're seeing in this specific instance of Noah of how he saves the righteous and why. But what does that mean for us? How does this all point us back to that verse 9 that, that Peter was referring to when he was referring to Noah? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I think we can find the answer to that by answering this question. Where do we fit into the story of Noah? Are we inside the ark or are we outside the ark? Are we righteous and rescued by God or are we drowning in the flood of our sins? Um, I... Uh, I serve in the twos and threes classroom once a month, and uh, I, I love it. It's a lot of fun. The kids are great. Gives me an excuse to play with Play-Doh. Every once in a while, we get the parachute out. Um, and we have regulars in there every week. I just I love seeing them. And, and two of my little buddies, I'm not going to use their names uh, just to protect the innocent, so let's call them Ezra and Keith, okay? <laughs> and this really happened, all right? So two, I think it was two weeks ago, I was in the twos and threes, and we're making Play-Doh teddy bears on the one side here. And out of the corner of my eye, I see Ezra and Keith off to the side. And all of a sudden, I hear, hey! And Ezra comes storming over with this sad, angry look on his face. Keith took my toy. Okay, well, that's not cool. What, what did Ezra want at that point right there? He wanted justice, right? Dude took my stuff. Give back. And do something about it now. So I walked over and said to Keith, Keith, did you take this? Yes, I did. Should you give it back? Yes, I should. Are you going to give it back? No, I'm not. <laughs> like, eh. All right. So eventually, gave it back. He apologized. Crisis averted. Everything was good. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, man, it was a pretty awesome teaching slash parenting moment there. You know, they're, they're going to walk away with this wisdom and knowledge. Until literally two minutes later, I'm back making my Play-Doh teddy bears, and what happens? Ezra's grabbing the toy from Keith. Completely different truck, right? I hear another, hey. 
Now Keith's coming over. He's all upset. So total fail on the parenting moment there. But, um, but maybe not. I'm thinking, okay, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was two minutes ago where we just dealt with this exact same thing. I'm sure that Ezra is going to see the error of his ways and say, Mr. Paul, Keith, I repent. I'm so sorry. Here is your wooden truck back. Please forgive me. Can we still be friends, right? Well, that's not what happened. When I said, hey, you know, you got to give that back. No, this is my toy. I want it. That same judgment, that, that, he, that justice that he was asking for, uh, it didn't sound so good anymore. You know, when he was in the crosshairs of receiving it, he wanted to rewrite the rules. Why am I sharing this with you? I think this gives us a perfect illustration of what is inherent in all of us. There, there's no pretense with the twos and threes. They're going to tell you, they're going to, you know, show you exactly what's on their mind. He didn't like that justice being doled out when it wasn't benefiting him. We do the same thing. We want to be in charge. We want to be the ones who dictate what the judgment should look like. We want to be in God's throne is what it ultimately comes down to. It was the same for Adam and Eve. That's where it started. It's the same in Noah's time. It's the same in Peter's time. It's the same in ours. You know, while most of us walk around thinking, yeah, you know, we're, we're pretty good. We probably deserve to be on the ark. Here's the reality. We don't. Romans 3, 10 through 12, probably a verse that many of us have heard before. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of us without God. We are all outside the ark. That punishment that those people deserved with the flood, it's the same punishment we deserve. That punishment that Peter was talking about with the false prophets, same punishment we deserve. So what do we do with that? Now we're back on this side. Now we've got the God who we talked about. He has to punish evil. And here we are. It's in us. We all have sin. If we can't be righteous on our own, well, then we deserve that punishment. Where's the rescue part come in? How do these two things coexist? They only coexist in one way and more directly in one person. And that's Jesus and his death on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, gave up his spot in heaven, came down, lived the perfect life, sinless, had the relationship that we were meant to have with God, and then freely gave his life and took all of our sins, yours and mine, on himself, because like we said, that sin has to be paid for. It has to be punished. But instead of the punishment coming on us, Jesus took it on himself. That's how much he loves us. And that's how those two seemingly opposite things can coexist. 
How can I have a God who is righteous and judges evil and loving at the same time? It's because he took the punishment for us. The price was still paid, but he paid it. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. Those two things coexisting. There's only one way for us to get on the ark. Just like with Noah, God gave really a a very specific way that he could be rescued. God's giving us that same thing. It's through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the awesome thing. It's open to everybody. It is the most inclusive. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter who other people say you are. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. What Jesus did paid the penalty for your sin. And because of that, because of the relationship that we can now have with God, we're seen as righteous just because of that relationship that Noah had with God. That's how he was seen as righteous. Here's the other part. This isn't just about salvation and a get-out-of-jail-free card from our sin. We also get a new life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Just like Noah. Noah had a whole new life. But the difference here is through Jesus, we have a life that is eternal. It never goes away. So in closing, let me ask you a couple of questions or have a couple of challenges for you. If you're inside the ark, if you're someone who's following Jesus, you've been saved um, by him and, and the work that he's done, I want to challenge you to treasure that and praise him. I know for me, I take that for granted way too much. I I underestimate sin, and I underestimate the price that he paid. Don't underestimate it. Don't take it for granted. And I encourage you this week, go back and and look at what we read today in Noah and in 2 Peter and just see what it looks like in Noah's life, how he obeyed, how he listened to God. And then what, what Peter is telling us of how we should grow in our knowledge of him so that we can have a deeper relationship with him. Take some time to do that this week. If you're here and you aren't in the ark, you know, if you have not decided yet to follow Jesus, you have the opportunity You've heard the truth of the gospel today. And you can do it right where you are. You can just turn to God and say, I'm sorry. I've been sinning against you. I want to be the judge. I want to be the guy who dictates everything. But I realize that's rebellion against you and that's sin. Ask for his forgiveness. Believe that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin. And you're forgiven. That's it. You just have to receive it. Just like Noah, you got to just take them up on the offer. If you're here today and you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about it, you don't know if you're ready to follow Jesus or you've made that decision, reach out. 
talk to me, talk to Ezra, talk to Keith, talk to whoever you came with today. But here's the great thing. You, by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you now get to walk with God, but you don't have to walk with him alone. That's another awesome truth. He's given us a church family to come alongside of you. So I just encourage you, don't just sit on that today. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for showing us that those two seemingly opposite things can coexist, and they coexist in your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that the truth of that just really sinks into us, that we have a deeper appreciation for your love, and that we walk out of here today with joy in our hearts because of it. I pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.